Well, good morning and welcome once again to our Family Bible Hour. As you know, our main text for this morning's sermon is taken from Romans 3, verses 9 to 28. And I've entitled this particular message, We Are All Guilty. I decided to break from our studies on the book of Genesis for this morning and speak on the topic of sin. Something that we all conveniently seem to avoid nowadays. And the message by Chris Lee last week on thirsting after God hit home as to how easily we seem to leave the Lord out in our very busy everyday schedules. Complacent and even at times careless about our spiritual responsibilities not only to ourselves, but also to those around us. And that, dearly beloved, is sin. For we were all saved to serve. We're no longer our own because we were bought with a tremendous price. And if we forget that, then we deny the Lord who bought us. Now, recently, our little assembly has been beset with the Loss of uh, loved ones, brothers-in-law, uncles, grandmothers, mothers, co-workers, former colleagues, etc. We were at a funeral yesterday of a former colleague, completely void of spiritual truths. Even the minister himself wasn't born again and yet led in prayer. And as we approach a certain age, these losses are more frequent. And so in light of that, I would like for us to re-examine the urgency of proclaiming the gospel to all that we come in contact with, something I'm sure we haven't been doing very well lately, at least. So if you still have your Bibles handy, would you please turn with me to uh, Romans 3, 9 uh, to 28 once again. And thank you again, Luke, for reading this passage for us. But as always, let's uh, first turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so thankful to be here this morning, and we have the privilege of opening up thy word, the Holy Scriptures, knowing that every word of it has been divinely preserved, and we can trust our souls with it. Help us as we open this text, Lord Jesus, to understand what it means and how it applies to each of us and what thy will is for us concerning this text. For we ask it in thy name and for thy glory. Amen. Alex Charles de Tocqueville was a French statesman and a writer. And in 1831, he was commissioned by the government of France to go to America and to investigate and report on the penitentiary system of the United States. And as a result of his visit to the States, he wrote a book about the nature, the virtues, and the defects of American democracy. His book was entitled Democracy in America. Shortly after his return home to France, Tocqueville wrote the following passage, quote, I sought for the greatness of America in her harbors and rivers and fertile fields and in her mines and commerce. It was not there. Not until I went into the churches 
and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness, did I understand the greatness of her power. America is great because she is good. And if not America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. End of quote. The Bible says in Proverbs 14.34, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. We are witnessing today firsthand the disintegration of the most powerful nation that ever existed on the face of this earth, the United States of America and Canada along with it. No other nations before her have ever enjoyed such formidable wealth and prosperity as she has. No other nation has ever given such amazing technological achievements to the people of the world as the United States did. No other nation before her has ever contributed so much to the cause of, cause of peace, liberty, and freedom worldwide. The United States of America became every nation's hope of greatness. Her achievements in medicine, science, technology, agriculture, and communications were the envy of the world. Her vast quantities of natural resources enabled her to enjoy a living standard that put her above her peers for nearly two centuries. And the power of her military thwarted all attempts to subdue her privileged position. But as America prospered, and I also include Canada here as part and parcel, as America prospered, it began to forget the source of its greatness, God. It began to forget that God was the one who gives mankind the power to gain wealth. America also forgot the warning which God had given to his chosen people Israel a long time ago when they made the same mistakes. In Deuteronomy 8, 17 to 20, we read these solemn words. And thou say in thine heart, my power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he sware unto thy fathers as it is this day. And it shall be, if thou do it all, forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that ye shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroyeth before your face, so shall ye perish, because ye would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. America has already been steeped in Satanism for decades. The greatness of the United States of America is gone because the goodness of its nation has become corrupt. God has been subtly but effectively removed from its schools, its homes, and its churches. It is no wonder then that America's greatest and highest office, that of the presidency, should be so deeply corrupted with sin that there is hardly any hope of restoration. 
how deeply corruption has penetrated into the once God-fearing fabric of American society is clearly evident in the scandals that faced former presidents Bill Clinton, George Bush, uh, Barack Obama, etc. But they alone are not to blame. The entire system seems to have become corrupt and consequently all of us are to blame. We are all guilty, every one of us. The United States are no more guilty than our Canada and its political system. And how did all of this happen? Surely it didn't happen overnight. If we are honest, we will confess that every father in this country, Christian or non-Christian, who failed to raise his children to become responsible citizens, respecting others and obeying the laws of the land, is to blame. Every mother, Christian or non-Christian, who failed to impart to her children the essence of love and kindness and compassion towards others is to blame. Every teacher who failed to acknowledge the handiwork of our Creator in the classroom is to blame. Every politician who helped to pass anti-God legislation, making the commandments of the Lord of non-effect, is to be blamed. And every pastor, elder, deacon, or minister of the gospel who failed to faithfully proclaim Christ as mankind's only hope of salvation from our sins are also to blame. For each one of us has had a part to play, no matter how small. Each one of us is guilty to one degree or another. Each one of us is responsible for the demise of our nations. For the Bible tells us why this is so in Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in that same chapter, in verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And sometimes even we as Christians forget that. There is none righteous because we have all sinned. And therein lies the problem, sin. It is impossible for anyone to be righteous if one is a sinner to begin with. Sin makes it impossible to be righteous. The very essence of righteousness demands purity of heart and rectitude of life and being and doing of right, the being and doing that which is just all the time, every time. Sin causes man to do the opposite. That sin nature which we all have been born with entices us to disobedience every step of the way. That sin nature may sometimes be restrained momentarily by legal laws or even moral laws because of the threat of punishment. But once that threat is removed or even distanced, that old sin nature rears its ugly head and causes sin to abound. It is a hopeless cycle. It is impossible to overcome. Again, we read in the book of Romans 3, 11 to 12, There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. 
What a frightening declaration by the word of God. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Oftentimes we hear people say when asked about their standing before God, Oh, I'll take my chances. I'm sure that God will weigh my good deeds against my bad deeds and that my good deeds will outweigh the bad. After all, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I've lived an honest life. I go to church. I pay my taxes. And the list of delusions is endless. And yet what every sinner fails to understand before he comes face to face with the righteousness of God is this, that sin is disobedience to God's will. That one sin is all it takes to make someone a sinner by practice. We are already all born sinners by nature, which means we are all prone to sin, but it is not until we sin personally that we become sinners by practice and therefore are without hope to save ourselves. But it is only when we come face to face with the holy standard of God's commandments and his unchanging character of holiness that we realize that our situation is lost. It is at that frightening moment when we are made aware of God's sovereign power to judge and to execute that we begin to tremble and to fear. It is at that precise moment that the sinner realizes that the wages of sin is death. It is at that moment, by the grace of God, that the sinner admits that he or she has failed to meet God's holy standard, that he or she has failed to please God, that he has failed to resolve the problem of separation because of sin. In short, the sinner is without hope. He is without hope because he now knows he cannot change himself. He cannot stop being a sinner. And if he could, he can do nothing about the sins which he had already committed. Well, on the other hand, he realizes, too, that God, who is holy, altogether righteous and just, also cannot change himself. And so the sin question still remains, what to do about it? For now, the sinner is made aware of the wrath of God. The Apostle Paul reveals to all sinners the solution for their sins in Romans 1, 16 to 17, when he writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul could unreservedly write that he was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because he had personally experienced its redeeming power from sin. He had personally seen it at work in the lives of all who believed, whether they were Jew or Gentiles. It was the power of God and the wisdom of God unto salvation. It was able to fully meet the need of the mind, the conscience, and the heart of man, for in it was revealed the righteousness of God through the vehicle of faith. It was a proclamation of salvation. 
entirely on the faith principle. It was not a doctrine of salvation by works, as so many are deceived into thinking. This gospel of Christ was the key that opened the door of liberty. Justification by faith alone was its basic principle. But no mind that is untaught by the Holy Spirit of God will ever receive it, because this gospel of Christ clearly demonstrates the utter unprofitableness of the flesh, or the first man. So that the second man, the man of God's choice, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, may alone be exalted. And through faith, all honor is given to Christ alone, who has finished the work that saves, and in whom alone God has been fully glorified, his holiness maintained, his righteousness vindicated. But the Apostle Paul does not stop there. If we read on in the rest of the first chapter of the book of Romans, verses 18 to 32, and then in chapter 2 and 3, we discover the desperate need for the gospel of Christ. For we see that the whole world has been condemned under sin. The whole world is guilty. The whole world is unrighteous and comes short of the glory of God. And time prevents us from covering thoroughly the apostles' argument concerning mankind's guilt before God in these opening few chapters of Romans. So I would like to briefly concentrate on just Romans chapter 3, 9 to 28. Paul's final verdict, which is really God's divine verdict on the entire human race, revealed to us through the Apostle Paul. Guilty is the verdict. Both Jew and Gentile, guilty on 14 distinct accounts. And the first guilty count is Romans 3.10. There is none righteous, no, not one. Everyone has failed in something. Everyone has disobeyed God's holy standard in some fashion or other. Everyone has either murdered or committed adultery or stolen something or lied to someone or had an evil thought towards a friend, a neighbor, or a family member. And in that sense, everyone is guilty. Everyone is unrighteous. There are no exceptions. All have sinned. The second count is Romans 3.11. There is none that understandeth. All have become willfully ignorant. How many times have we in our own lives experienced this? We knew something to be true, but because it did not please our fancy, we rejected it because we had no understanding. The third count of guilt is also in verse 11. There is none that seeketh after God. No one seeks after God's will. They all seek their own. Even in the lives of Christians, there is this constant battle the battle of self-will versus the will of God. What sinner, therefore, could ever have any hope of ever standing before God's judgment without condemnation? Then there is the fourth count in verse 12. They are all gone out of the way. They have all turned their backs on the truth. They have all refused to listen. 
They have all chosen their own paths, paths that lead to destruction. And as a result, they are together become unprofitable because they dishonor God in their deeds instead of glorifying him. And so the apostle is just in saying, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Though many may argue about the good that some do, which brings benefits to man or to society. But the fact of the matter is that this is not their normal practice. Their practices are evil. They do not follow after that which is good because the sin nature is prone to do evil rather than good. Then there is a seventh count and an eighth, a ninth, a tenth, in verses 13 to 14. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They are ready to swallow up the poor and the innocent, waiting for an opportunity to do mischief, like the old serpent seeking to devour. And though they may not openly display this cruelty, yet secretly they intend mischief. With their tongues they have used deceit. Lying and deception are a characteristic of the unredeemed, the unregenerate. Herein they show their true nature and their connection to the father of all lies, the devil. They make a trade of lying and a constant practice. And no amount of education, culture, training, or even importance of office can curb this practice this despicable practice of lying. The poison of asps is under their lips. This is the most venomous and incurable poison with which they destroy their neighbor's good name by reproaches and attempts at his life by false witness. It is the poison inserted into the very nature of man by that old serpent right from the very beginning and their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Now, most people today take cursing very lightly. Comedians use it profusely. But cursing was such a heinous sin that the Mosaic law forbade the cursing of father or mother upon the pain of death. In Exodus 21:17, we read, And he that curseth his father or his mother shall be surely put to death, for it is diametrically opposed to God's fifth commandment, which says, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Exodus 20.12 America today has an epidemic of disintegrating families because of its rejection of God and his commandments concerning families and the sanctity of marriage. What hope then is there for a family to survive if God has been cast out? Then in verse 15 of Romans 3, we are given the 11th count of guilt against mankind. Their feet are swift to shed blood. See how sin, unchecked, degenerates to unspeakable human cruelties. 
hatred, bitterness, envy, eventually produces murder, which in turn destroys the peace and the well-being of others. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Wherever these murdering spirits go, <coughs> excuse me, destruction and misery go with them. <clears throat> These become their companions. Destruction and misery to the people of God, to the country and neighborhood where they live, to the land and nation, and finally to themselves. And death is the end result of these things. <clears throat> then in verse 17, we see the 13th condemnation. And the way of peace have they not known, because, or as we have seen, they have deliberately chosen the ways of death. Their sin has its own punishment. A man needs no more to make him more miserable than to be a slave to his own sins. They know not how to preserve peace with others or how to obtain peace for themselves. Oh, they may talk about peace, they may even seek peace, but they are strangers to all true peace because they have rejected the Prince of Peace, the only one who can bring peace to their own lives. And the final condemnation, the 14th, bringing a guilty verdict, is in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Hence, there is no wisdom in them. This is the root of the matter. If there is no fear of God before their eyes, the Bible constantly reminds us about the fear of God. Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then in Proverbs 3, 7 to 8, Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Wicked people do not have the fear of God before their eyes. They do not steer by it. They are governed by other rules and aim at other ends. Where there is no fear of God, there can be no good expected. Once fear is cast off, prayer is restrained, and then all goes to wreck and ruin very quickly. But the Bible tells us that the fear of God is what keeps our hearts opposed to evil on the one hand, and our eyes on the holiness of God on the other hand. The fear of God always brings before us a need to evaluate our actions and to carefully weigh the possible consequences for those actions. Whether sinner or saint, God's holiness must be acknowledged and his sovereignty confessed, for he is Lord of all and he dictates the time of our departure or the time of our lingering. Every breath that we take, every morsel of food that we ingest, every drop of water that we drink is an extension of God's sovereign grace and loving kindness to us. And when our time is ended, 
when our days of youth and vigor come to an end on this earth, we must then come to a reckoning before the Almighty. For the saint, the Christian, the one who has been saved by grace, it is the judgment seat of Christ where the saint's service for the Lord will be judged. And though we enjoy his manifold wis uh, blessings and wisdom and mercy and grace and unconditional love as children of God, we nevertheless must remember who our Savior, the Lord Jesus, is. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Hebrews 12, 6-7. And so the Apostle Paul, that former Saul of Tarsus, that Pharisee of Pharisees, that one who kept the law blamelessly, discovered on the road to Damascus one day, as he met the Savior face to face, that his own righteousness was as filthy rags. Paul understood experientially that the law could only condemn. The law was that measuring stick of God's holy standard, which no man could ever keep. The law was manifested so that by the law could come the knowledge of sin. The law could not save a single person. No child understands the extent of his rebellion or the depth of his transgression against his parent until he is confronted with his parents' law or standard of conduct. Disobedience is not clearly understood until it is measured against perfect obedience. And so the Apostle Paul, now a new man, now born again by the Spirit of God from above, is able to conclude in Romans 3.20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall there no flesh be justified in his sight. No human being can ever be justified in the sight of God based on personal merit or works because of the sin nature and its enmity towards God. That's why Paul writes in Romans 1, 16-17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. There is but one hope for sinful, a sinful man. There is but one Savior who can rescue fallen man from the condemnation of the law. And that man is Christ Jesus. And everyone who hears and believes in the gospel of Christ will be saved once and for all. For it, and it alone, is the power of God unto salvation. It saves not only the least and the most helpless of man, such as a little child, but it saves even the greatest and the strongest of men, whether they be presidents, prime ministers, kings, or queens. The gospel of Christ alone meets 
and satisfies God's holy standards of justice and righteousness, thereby allowing God's mercy, grace, forgiveness of sins to flow freely to the repentant sinner. But the world has made it very clear, and we include the United States and Canada as well, that they will not have this man, Christ Jesus, reign over them. They have chosen another man yet to come to reign over them, whether they realize it or not. And that man is the man of sin, the one who will profess to be the Messiah, the one who will allow his servants to revel in their sins and grovel in their fleshly desires. The Bible calls him the Antichrist. Oh, I trust that everyone who hears this message this morning is in Christ Jesus. The one who went to the cross of Calvary and shed his own blood for our sins in order to redeem our souls. And if perchance there is but one here this morning that is not completely certain whether all their sins have been forgiven, then why not come to him this morning and ask his forgiveness and yield your life to him? He will never turn you away. Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Acts 16, 31. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee for this book of Romans, where the destiny of fallen man has been clearly laid out before us, that we have all sinned, and come short of the glory of God. That in and of ourselves there is absolutely nothing that we can do to change our circumstances. But there is one who came from the portals of heaven and went to the cross of Calvary and paid that penalty that no man could pay. And it is by faith we are told that we have eternal life, for by grace are ye saved through faith, not of works, lest any of us should boast. So, Father, we thank thee for this book called the Holy Bible. And we thank thee, Lord, that we have believed in this blessed Savior. But, Lord, we know that we have many loved ones and neighbors and friends and colleagues that are yet outside of Christ. And sometimes, try as hard as we may, we fail to drum up the courage to reach them with the gospel of Christ. Oh, Father, we pray for the boldness and the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do so while there is still yet time. For we know not if the Lord comes tomorrow or even this afternoon. So part us now with thy blessings, we pray, and if the Lord be not come, may it please thee once again to bring us together around his table next Lord's Day. For we ask it all in his name and for his glory. Amen.